This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today is Reverend Peter Organ and we're at the Church of St. Michael East Wickham. Hi Peter, it's good to see you. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for allowing us to record in your in your place of work, in your place of worship, in this no, lovely church. No worries. Apologies for the echo, but it kind of comes with the territory. That's fair enough, I think. You know, <laughs> well, you get people who like to go to bed at night with the sounds of the Enterprise D kind of uh-huh. you know, on loop by their bed. So maybe it's got that similar kind of you know special ambience, I suppose, that you don't get anywhere else. Certainly. Well, I wanted to talk to you basically because this is a topic that we've been keen to cover uh, on primitive culture for some time um, looking at religion in Star Trek and I thought well who can I get on to talk about that and then I came across you on Twitter you're both a vicar a Church of England vicar and also a Star Trek podcaster so you were kind of the it was a bit of a no-brainer to try and get you involved to come onto this one but before we sort of delve into this topic a bit maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you got into Star Trek and and how you got into the church and and what your kind of journey was between those two things because I guess they're not two things that necessarily obviously go together in some ways. Okay. The easiest one to do is Star Trek, so we'll start with that. Mm-hmm. I'd seen a little bit of the original series when it was shown on BBC Two, uh, but I always preferred Doctor Who back in those days. Right, yeah. And it wasn't really until I saw a very... It became a very cherished copy of Wrath of Khan. I watched it so many times on video, I pretty much wore it out. Mm-hmm. And that really what sort of opened my mind to Star Trek rather more. And, and certainly, obviously, by the time you get to the movies, the effects are that much better. And sure, yeah. uh, you're not getting little dots on the screen anymore, actually getting <laughs> yeah, and more than the same model shot all the time as well. So, And uh, yes, that's, that's, the movies were the point at which Star Trek overtook Doctor Who and, mm-hmm. in terms of my fascination. Then Next Generation came out. Uh, and again, I didn't, we didn't have Sky, so I had to watch it on BBC when they showed it, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very exciting times. And then that morphed into Deep Space Nine, which was even more exciting as far as I was concerned. Yeah, definitely. Since then, Voyager, I was so keen on an enterprise, very less, much less so, it has to be said. Right. It seemed right. to be retreading a lot of old grounds and old plots. Not a huge amount to talk about today, probably about Enterprise. The yeah. Enterprise definitely signalled a bit of a shift away from an interesting kind of spiritual topics and religious topics. Yeah, I mean, Flox mentions that he attended some religious ceremonies on Earth, including at the Vulcan conscience, Mm -hmm. interestingly. Mm -hmm. We don't tend to think of the Vulcans in religion, but then again, Star Trek 3 is full of Vulcan religion, one way or another. But yes, that's pretty much it when it comes to Enterprise. Mm. And and Voyager, likewise, was more about sort of science, and it was 
could be, I could be said to be the most sciencey of all the treks. So, mm, mm. To the point that those of us without a grasp of, you know, astrophysics were sort of sitting there going, what, what are they talking about now? <laughs> <laughs> Although there was that quite nice episode early on where Janeway had to go on a kind of spiritual quest, which I have to say, I, when I watched it in the 90s, I hated that episode. It really yeah. didn't work for me at all. And then I came back to watch it a couple of years ago and I loved it. I found it really gripping and really interesting. And, and Chakotay's... Um, in- that's about the one interesting bit about him, not that they made much of it, but that mm. whole thing about the dream quest. And, yeah. Um, yeah. You see, for me, weirdly, in the 90s, that kind of worked for me as a, like a teenager or whatever. I kind of accepted that. But, you know, now I've heard all these stories about how they, they got all the details wrong. Yeah. The, the advisor they had uh, advising them on Chakotay was just feeding them nonsense basically they yeah, made it's up not particularly much, so, authentic it has know. to be said from what I, little i know yeah but i guess maybe you know as an audience member back then if you didn't know much about native american religions it kind of it played into your expectations in someone it seemed quite interesting but i guess there was that element they were using it as a slightly kind of exotic kind of unusual take on religion and of course what we don't see very much in star trek is the kind of when we see religion it tends to be alien religions or it tends to be you know Mm -hmm. in that case native american religion which you know obviously is based on earth and based in reality and so on but at the same time it's very unfamiliar we don't tend to see much other than that brief mention from flocks as you said where he he talks about um you know studying hinduism and, and so on talking a little bit about real earth religions but generally speaking earth religion in terms of kind of religious practice as it exists in the real world is something that is left out of Star Trek. Hmm. For the most part, yeah. Um, the, only, the only sort of bits and pieces, like Data's Day, they mentioned that there was a Hindu festival of light mm-hmm. on the Enterprise that day, which a bit of a surprise, really. Not, mm-hmm. not, certainly not something that ever features on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, again, Next Generation wasn't particularly sort of... If, if you, you found a religion, it was somebody else's planet, basically, and, mm-hmm. and usually, generally, um, rather like the original series, they were to be brought into the light of It was a bad science. thing, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the original series has a really interesting take on religion, of course, because there you've got, it's very much, the, usually it's, it's a, a mad computer that's behind it all, mm. or it's a super powerful alien being that is masquerading as a god, mm. um, but has brought down a peg or two by Kirk, one way or another, so, mm. yeah. And partly, of course, that's, I suppose, Gene Roddenberry's influence. Mm-hmm. You know, personally, he was a very committed atheist. I mean, quite a sort of strident atheist, I think. I've got, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes I, I dug up from Gene Roddenberry just to put into context, because I think we talk about how Roddenberry was kind of anti-religion and so on, but maybe we don't necessarily think about how vehemently he felt that. He said, in one interview, he said, religion was a substitute brain. And in another, he said, I condemn the effort to take away the power of rational decision to drain people of their free will, all religions which use the notion of God as a weapon against humanity. So very much, and you can sort of see that attitude towards religion Mm -hmm. in a lot of those original series episodes where, as you say, Kirk will come in and sort of dismantle some whole belief system. Uh, You know, famously in the Apple, I suppose. Well, that's... (laughs) I mean, you even get a giant snake head in the Garden of Eden there, don't you? So it goes the full hog with the Apple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm interested, I mean, for me, you know, I grew up as an atheist, so for me, part, I suppose part of the appeal of Star Trek was this kind of humanism, it was this kind of um, scientific outlook and so on. But I'm interested for you as someone of, you know, obviously a very deep religious faith and so on, presumably. Did that, <laughs> one would hope. Did, well, <laughs> would imagine, yeah. <laughs> uh, did that trouble you at all watching Star Trek or was it something you were aware of? Or? No, because certainly with the original series, 
it, it, it didn't seem particularly connected to the sort of religion I was experiencing. I mean, there right. wasn't generally a computer behind the scenes running everything in church. As far as you um, know. As far as I know, yeah. <laughs> that would have made church possibly more exciting, I don't know. But yeah, no, it wasn't. I was watching Star Trek for the aliens and for the spaceships, which, as I say, is one of the reasons why the original series didn't quite grab me as much as the movies onwards, because right, sure. there were, you know, it's only once you get to the movies and they've suddenly got a lot more budget and ability to create interesting looking aliens and lots of very exciting spaceship shots that really got me hooked. And the sort of the, the absence of religion didn't really hit me so much until Next Generation. And I think the, 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 the one that really sort of sticks in the mind is Who Watches the Watches, mm. which has a, yeah, not, not the gentlest approach to religion ever. Also, uh, hand in hand with the suggestion that uh, Picard ought to act as God at one point as yeah, well, yeah. because he's, he's already influenced this society who, uh, sort of, you know, they, 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 they turned away from religion. Now, now seeing, uh, Enterprise crew members in the duck blind and all that has meant that they're now going back to it again. So, her, Picard's got to play God to try and rectify it. Like, what, mm. really? <laughs> he's absolutely, I mean, it, it, the word he uses is horrifying. I think yeah. he's so appalled at this idea that, yeah, as you say, this kind of slightly, almost sort of slightly clumsy archaeologist or, or anthropologist or whatever it is saying, yeah. you know, well, you, you know, yes, we've messed up here, but maybe this is the, the least worst outcome, basically, is you just pretend to be God for a bit and tell them what to do and we'll kind of, you know, brush it all under the carpet somehow. The weird thing is, I mean, Picard in that episode is completely... You, you know, like I say, appalled at that idea. There's no way he'll engage with that. He keeps talking about, he talks about sending them back to the dark ages, these, you know, enlightened proto-Vulcans. By the time we get to, say, Voyager, you see, like in the episode, uh, Prophecy, there's the Klingon sort of cleric who's basically saying to Bellana, well, you know, you can interpret the texts how you like. You know, maybe you could kind of guide these people towards a certain interpretation. And, you know, because there's this discussion about whether her unborn daughter is going to be the Klingon saviour or not. Mm -hmm. She is deeply sceptical of this idea, as are a lot of the Klingons. And the Klingon priest is almost taking quite a kind of pragmatic approach, sort of saying, well, I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't know whether this prophecy is a load of nonsense, but, you know... Uh, from the point of view of my crew, from the point of view of these 200 people or whatever, it would be really helpful if we could kind of encourage them to believe this. And in the end, she does sort of go along with it. So there's that weird shift to almost doing what Picard was refusing to do and sort of not playing God exactly, but kind of going along with this religious belief for the sake of the people who it's helping in some way. Mm. And certainly as next generation goes on, it, it, it becomes somewhat more nuanced mm -hmm. uh, in its approach to religion, particularly to developing the Klingon religion. And mm. um, when they effectively clone Klingon Jesus for an episode yeah. <laughs> in Rightful Air, which I actually did a talk on at Theological College. Oh, wow. I showed yeah. a bit of that and we, we, I was doing a subject called bioethics where you're looking at the, the ethics behind medicine and yeah. uh, developments in science. And uh, that, that was obviously a really, uh, really interesting one to look at. And that whole question about, you know, you've, you, you, you've cloned this uh, person, that, uh, but he isn't necessarily going to be a complete copy of the original. Mm. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's a nature-nurture business going on there. So, yeah, no, that, was, that for me was a lot more an interesting approach to religion. There's also that thing that I suppose science fiction can do. I mean, first of all, you've, you've got the fact that they can create a clone of their kind of messiah character and therefore they can bring them back uh, without having to wait for this kind of divine event in the future. But there's also the fact that I suppose because it's science fiction, because it's a kind of fantastical world, you can have these stories and they do crop up now and then where, you know, one of these kind of prophesied beings, uh, messiah or whatever does turn up and it raises these questions how do people cope i mean i'm thinking of the episode ascension in deep space nine where cisco gives up his kind of status as the emissary to this other 
this poet who seems to have a better claim because he went into the wormhole first. And, yeah. and, and there's this kind of ambiguity about, well, since the prophets don't really understand linear time, uh, did they intend him to be the emissary? Did they intend Cisco to be the emissary or whatever? Uh, and Cisco is quite relieved to give up the mantle of being this kind of religious icon. But then this new emissary starts saying all these appalling things and, and bringing, saying, yes. exactly, bringing back the caste system and so on. And I was uh, talking actually on Twitter this week with um, one of our other hosts on the Trek FM network, Brandon, about, he'd also been watching this episode recently and he was talking about it in terms of his Christian faith and so on. And I said, you know, that one of the things that I had trouble with in that episode was I could, I could understand that this guy had this kind of effect on society and, and so on, but it was a step too far for me when Kira literally said, right, I'm going to quit my job. You know, the, this religious figure has told me I have to go and be an artist. I'm clearly hopeless at art. You know, we, we, we've seen that in the episode, uh, but I'm going to go and do it anyway. And, and we even have uh, one of the priests who murders someone for refusing to go along with the caste system yes. again on the grounds, well, the emissary told me so. But it did sort of raise this question to me. You know, I was saying to Brandon, well, you know, if, if your Messiah came back and said everyone should do X, Y, Z, and that involved quitting your job or that involved, you know, murder or whatever it is, uh, how far would you go in that situation? Because I guess in reality, that's not something that people have had to deal with. But hypothetically, it could be. Do you know what I mean? What, yeah, what would you I all... mean, I suppose your, your, your closest parallel for... Uh, certainly Christianity anyway uh, in our time if the Pope decides tomorrow yeah of uh, the you know uh, X I mean the birth control is an example where the, you know, a decision was handed down from on high mm. and everybody was for Roman Catholic anyway was expected to, to toe the party line uh, interesting to see just how many don't um, <laughs> and there's, there's sort of widespread disregard of it because it's seen as not a very logical thing to people to ask people to do yeah um so i think i mean kira is interesting in that one and there's also uh, the, the one that's at the end of season one of deep space nine in the hands of the prophets uh, is that the about one? the teaching of ev- not evolution but you know teaching yes about exactly that yeah. whole discussion and yeah. again she seems to be going along for and you know mm-hmm. sort of resisting cisco um and butting up against him uh, pointing out that actually keiko isn't necessarily being as balanced as she could be and all mm. that sort of business uh, and it looks like it's heading in one direction only to be sort of for Kira to be pulled back again you know, realising yes. that actually that's not the way forward I mean as, when I was uh, doing my theology degree before I even went forward for ordination there was a poster on the dean's wall that said that Jesus died to take away your sins not your brain <laughs> and I think that's very important and that kind of ties into what Rodenberry's big beef uh, with religion is that if if it's being used as a substitute for thinking for yourself uh, yeah. then clearly it's not a good thing mm. but if it's part of your system of making sense of the world around you and it currently fits rather like the Bajoran system I mean I mean, Deep Space Nine has a lovely have-your-cake-and-eat-it approach to religion, particularly in, in the religion of, of the Bajorans, because, yes, they, they worship their gods, but it turns out that the gods are real. They yeah. might be very advanced aliens, our original series, but ultimately, because they exist out of, outside of time, they do know what's going to happen. Yeah. And you can have prophets who get a vision for what's going to happen because, you know, they, they know. So it's, 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 a, it's a lovely way of, of having it both ways. And it enables Deep Space Nine to, then to explore religious practice in a way that isn't quite so uh, antagonistic as previous Trek approaches to it have been. And, and Kira generally is a fairly uh, sympathetic character her faith is always very important to her. Mm. Sometimes, yes, she sort of dallies with fundamentalism, but she always seems to get drawn back again. That's an interesting point, yeah. I, I mean, I was wondering whether it's partly me 
watching it from an atheist perspective and I'm always a bit surprised when Kira I, like, I know she has this faith but at the same time there's lots of people that I know in my life who have faith but it's a kind of it's not something that's at the forefront necessarily mm. most of the time in your dealings with them and it's when it suddenly impacts on her job or it impacts in some kind of major way or she's going to make some huge life decision because of it it always takes me slightly by surprise but you know, at the same time, this guy, Brandon, who I was talking to about it, he said, well, no, he bought into that. He understood that was a fundamental part of her character. It made perfect sense to him that she would behave in that way, in that situation, because that was so important to her. And, and, and it's quite often, if a society's been uh, under the thumb of another society for a while, and particularly if religion has been uh, trodden on, I mean, you just looked at yeah. the countries in Eastern Europe, um, Poland, for an obvious example, where it's, you know, as soon as thing, things are, that their faith becomes far more key identifying part of who they are, it's part of their resistance, effectively. Yeah, I think absolutely that's true. And um, one of the things I think is quite nice about the way that these religious themes are handled in Deep Space Nine is that there's the episode, uh, I think it's in The Rapture, when Kai Wynn has that moment with Kira where she says, oh, you think I lack courage? And she talks about being imprisoned in the camps during the occupation mm. and how the Vedics were treated. And, you know, it's, I mean, the thing I love about Deep Space Nine is the way the writers are always able to kind of subvert your expectations and kind of, you think you understand everything about a given situation and then they, they give you some kind of nugget that forces you to look at it slightly differently. And Wynne is a brilliant example because, you know, she's probably the character we most love to hate. You know, she's <laughs> such a despicable person and she's, and she sort of embodies almost everything that, uh, is wrong about religion potentially or that can be perverted about religion in a yeah. way. She's like the sort of ultimate bad, priest in some ways and at the same time then she says something like that and you suddenly get a kind of flash of insight into her and you and you think oh you know have i have i judged her too harshly you, you know well, she, I mean, she did stand up for this thing and she did suffer for it yeah, i mean that's the joy of deep space nine is it's it's no, no character is a two-dimensional mm. baddie or goodie they, they, they all have you know different facets of the character i mean even gold the cat can do something yeah you know altruistic and loving so occasionally yeah um, as whereas the you know, next week he'll probably end up being equally loathable but you know yeah and and win is yeah it's a very good example i love the way in the bajoran religion isn't just presented as a monochrome yeah all the all the vedics are like this um mm. you know there, there are clearly different denominations to use a, a earth term mm. uh, and some are more fundamental and others some are very strange yeah, the episode the storyteller mm. uh, it would have been interesting if Kira had gone down to, on that rather than yeah. O'Brien and Bashir because that seemed very different to the 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 Bajoran religion as it had been presented up till then and, and afterwards, to be honest, a lot more you know, sort of this idea of sort of monsters and preying on people as well to an extent as well. So it was, it was a very different sort of approach to the same religion, but it clearly a, a different branch to it, you know, in the same way as Christianity has a sort of spectrum from you know, Roman Catholicism, uh, you've got Mormonism, you've got, you know, Protestant churches. So that, you know, and there are mm. some that, like myself, who don't have a particular problem with most of science. There are others that, you know, if it's not in the Bible, it ain't true. You know. Yeah, yeah. And definitely we get that sense that Wynne is representing quite an orthodox, sort yeah. of quite a conservative, strict sort of side of the church. I guess Vedic Burial is the obvious sort of liberal, you know, much more laid back. He doesn't go around grabbing people's ears. He's yeah. Like, you know, he's, he doesn't even like it happening to him. Exactly. You know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and he's, he's got a girlfriend, Kira, and he's yeah. quite sort of laid back about all this sort of stuff um and very much seems to be representing a i guess what we might think of as a more sort of modern or a more kind of uh open yeah, version of the church kind of, yeah. in a way and yeah you're right it's interesting that deep space nine 
I think it's quite good at avoiding falling into the trap of presenting all the Vedics as being the same somehow, mm. um, and that we do get that variety. And that's, you know, that's a, again, a great element of it. I was just thinking about this thing you were saying about science and religion as well, because, you, you know, you're right in that early episode in Deep Space Nine, when Wynne comes on the scene the first time, it's very much in this kind of science versus religion battle, and it's right. Keiko on one side and Wynne on the other. And it's interesting, you know, as you said, that repeatedly in Deep Space Nine, we get this kind of workaround of saying, well, you know, uh, prophets, wormhole aliens, it doesn't really matter. It's all the same thing. It's just words. It's just kind of a matter of perspective. And I think that's sort of one of those ways that Star Trek in the 90s in Deep Space Nine and also Voyager kind of manages to incorporate religion in some ways without threatening the kind of scientific whole but it's quite interesting uh just thinking about that voyager episode again sacred ground that janeway goes through this whole quest as a very committed rational scientific atheist uh wanting to find a scientific explanation and the whole episode is geared towards you know put down the tricorder stop doing your scanning stop kind of trying to understand it rationally just go with it you know see what happens and kind of experience this this thing and then and ultimately she has to kind of make a leap of faith that although she can't really account for what's changed or what's happened she's going to risk her life to save Kess uh, because she's sort of been told that it will it will work and she won't die as a result and then there's that wonderful scene at the end of the episode where the doctor gives the scientific explanation and says well you know these particles are built up in your body and then when you did this other thing and this combined with this it enabled you to survive the thing and the weird thing is that the scientific explanation comes to sound as kind of hollow and meaningless to Janeway yeah. and there's just that scene where she, she just sort of sits there not really concentrating then leaves the room and I think it's a brilliant I guess this is the thing that me as a teenager hated about this episode in a way was I was I, I was kind of uh, very much against the the lesson of it but I, I obviously mellowed because I, I was more willing to to hear that in the last few years and more and more willing to just take it as Janeway's journey and as that kind of experience of realizing that the things that you felt certain about you know maybe aren't as concrete as you thought or that there are things that you don't understand or that you're not going to be able to understand and that idea that there can be more than one way of explaining something and they're yeah. not necessarily in conflict so yes yeah. they're wormhole aliens yes they're prophets they can actually be exist as both things yeah. without, without you know it being problematical yeah well obviously this is a a huge topic uh, talking about religion in Star Trek. We're not going to probably hit on every possible example, but I thought one way that we could kind of approach it and one way we could kind of look into it is looking in terms of the kind of, um, not so much just religions in Star Trek, you know, the Klingon religion, the Bajoran religion or whatever, but looking at kind of real world religious stories, religious ideas, particularly Christian ideas, because I suppose those are the ones that we're probably the most familiar with and the writers of Star Trek are most familiar with and the ways that those have been used in Star Trek. So the first one that came to mind for me was Eden. And mm -hmm. obviously we talked a little bit about the apple and yeah. this idea of this kind of Eden planet and Kirk comes in, uh, you know, as Satan or the serpent or whatever and basically corrupts them with knowledge and brings them into the swinging 60s and tells them they should all be off having sex and making babies yeah. <laughs> and all this kind of thing. Um, but actually Eden is something that comes up quite a few times. You know, we get it obviously in the way to Eden. There's this idea of this planet Eden that they're going to. We even get it in Star Trek VI, you know, with the painting of the expulsion from paradise. Yeah. And that sort of idea that, that paradise is always going to be lost, you know, that it's, it's temporary. It's something you can't hold on to and an interesting thing for Spock to have in his quarters isn't it I mean, it's, it's very strange yeah <laughs> I agree I agree 
I mean, every time I watch that film, it sort of strikes me as more odd that he has that there. But again, it kind of adds to, I mean, in the context of the film, we know that it's the last original series film. He contextualizes it in terms of, you know, this perfect thing ending, this kind of, you know, the kind of sadness of that. I mean, uh, it sort of makes me think a bit of like the final lines of Paradise Lost with these, um, you know, beautiful lines about Adam and Eve holding hands and basically walking away almost into the distance away from the camera together. It's yeah. this kind of like, you know, that, that thing is over. And I suppose there's that element to it. But it, it also just plays into this kind of interesting idea, I think, in the original series in particular with Paradise and the kind of impossibility of Paradise and whether human beings are are equipped for paradise almost you know Kirk has in the paradise syndrome he has this speech about you know we have to pull ourselves up by our you know we're kind of grittier than that we shouldn't be kind of succumbing to this kind of heavenly Edenic sort of world the same thing in the nexus I suppose the kind of the the pleasures of this you know garden of wonders almost and always there's this idea there's something seductive and dangerous about it and i was thinking even in um, the wrath of khan in a way you get the same thing with genesis and, the, and obviously you know it's called the genesis device <laughs> it basically makes a garden of eden it makes a planet of eden and mccoy has that line you know where he says very much in the kind of roddenberry mold he says according to myth the earth was created in six days you know he doesn't use the word god he doesn't yeah. kind of he calls it a myth but something about the way he says it, it almost makes me feel Obviously, he's saying the Genesis device is a kind of unnatural phenomenon. It's kind of uh, man overreaching. But there's something about it. It almost feels like he's saying it's blasphemous. Do you know what I mean? There's something kind of fundamentally wrong about it. And of yeah. course, the planet basically falls apart. It's all a disaster. Yeah, you know, so it turns out, he turns out to be right. Yes, sense. indeed. And I, there, there's the sort of the, the, the haste. I think it, partly it's that idea of, you know, sort of, just because you can do a thing isn't necessarily a good mm. idea that you do it and not thinking it through first. So, and, and that ultimately proves to be real because, I mean, it creates so many problems in the future, so much so that, the, you know, mo- at least a couple of the later movies keep referring to it all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but that sense in which, yeah, uh, humanity needs to stop and think sometimes. It's got all this technological capability and, and let's face it, Genesis is pretty, um, you know, mind-blowing in terms of its techno- technological ability. But, you know, perhaps we should to stop and question why before we start rushing to do this sort of thing mm. but it, i suppose it's that interesting element of the kind of kirk spock mccoy uh sort of trifecta that you know mccoy i guess obviously typically represents the kind of human side the emotional side the kind of passionate side yeah. as opposed to the kind of cool scientific side but in that instance where it's science sort of gone awry you do almost get that sense that you know spock is sort of because spock says to him you've got to govern your passions you, you know don't get worked yeah, well, up about I mean, genesis makes sense this is science from this a science yeah. you know if you can do it scientifically yeah. speaking do it because you know then you're pushing forward the boundaries of science and i, I think mccoy is rather saying well you know perhaps we should look at this more ethically and you know, yeah what are the consequences of doing this not necessarily in terms of what we'll achieve but in terms of how that will change us uh, as a not just a human race obviously but as the federation and, and also those around us as well i guess it's one of those things it's almost like you know uh the ethics of cloning or of kind of you know any of these kind of reproductive technologies or things like that that um are where scientific or medical technology is in some way in conflict with kind of religious traditions and do, do yeah. you know what I mean these kind of things and of course genetic modification is a very interesting one for star trek for, mm. you know, yeah exactly yeah. history of it yeah. because scientifically again they've got the ability to do it but we you know there's all this sort of stuff that happened in the past with khan and, and there's the reason why we don't do it anymore and and even when there seems to be quite sound reasons for doing it and uh, with bashir and the, what they call them the, the pack 
what jackpack, is, uh, the jackpack. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's you know there's, there are huge questions about whether it's ethical to use their abilities or, not, or whether it's actually unethical to just let them you know do nothing and be shot away in a cargo bay, which they are mm. for most of the episodes. I mean that brings out interesting questions as well. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Well, I guess from Eden, the the next kind of step up in a way for Star Trek is dealing with God. And obviously we see in the original series, I guess we see uh, Apollo, you know, a God, but kind of a God that's, uh, you know, even by modern standards or in the 1960s or whatever has... uh, indisputably fallen out of favour. And I guess a lot of people with that episode, Who Mourns for Adonais, there's this sort of question over it. And I've, I've heard a lot of discussion about the, the dialogue in that episode and how it seems to pull in two different directions because Kirk has these lines. He keeps saying, we've outgrown you. We have no need for gods anymore. Yeah, and exactly. he has this line, we only exactly, need one god. <laughs> I know, and it's, it's kind of... I think people have wrestled with that. And, you know, one, one interpretation is to say, well... Clearly, Gene Roddenberry didn't write that. Yes, line. <laughs> you know, someone stuck that, that in. One. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> somehow, somehow, that line got in there. Uh, but there is that kind of, I suppose, you know, in terms of 1960s TV and so on, it was maybe that the level of that of like Roddenberry's atheism was problematic yes. to some extent. So there would it be kind a of attempts to to moderate it a little yeah. bit. But obviously, by the time you get to Star Trek V, we have seemingly a film about God and we think you know at least temporarily it seems like we have actually found God and we've met God and McCoy you know again is the one who says you don't ask the almighty to show his ID or whatever yeah. it is so he's McCoy seems to have pretty much kind of accepted that it you know it might well be God and that we, maybe we should at least you know be, be cautious about how we deal with that situation in case it is God yeah. and Roddenberry famously didn't like Star Trek 5 and I have to say I, I never liked Star Trek 5 it's kind of grown on me a little bit um, <laughs> but the weird thing about Star Trek 5 is actually it's not God you know yeah, it's a fake it's, exactly. a, it's the Wizard of Oz it's a complete yeah. con and actually they go in search of God and they find this really nasty malevolent kind of monster that starts zapping people and so on and Kirk is the one who sees through it as as throughout the original series he's the one who says no that's not a God it's just you know whatever it's a, it's a fake it's a machine it's you know let's destroy it basically but at the same time i suppose the kind of what was a departure for star trek in some ways with that film was that there was this kind of there was a a slightly some degree of a serious quality uh given to the idea of the search for meeting god and that that was Mm. a possibility and that that was something that they could engage with so kirk might think cyborg's mad but at the same time the film doesn't completely discount him until you get to that. And, he, and, so, and, you know, Cyborg himself has, I mean, right, he, he, he finds out that he's been chasing something that doesn't turn out to be God, but he, he has a palpable effect on mm. his followers. I mean, there's interesting questions about, you know, sort of cult. And certainly, I think when Shatner was writing it, that he'd, he'd been watching Tele-Evangelist, mm. and that was kind of his inspiration. But you look at Cyborg himself, and he doesn't seem to be as, as badly manipulative. In fact, he seems to be giving people a sense of healing, mm. and even including McCoy over his relationship with his father and his the decision he had to make about his father. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting, though, that, of course, you know, Kurt decides he's not going to go through the process. So mm. he, he doesn't want to be saved, basically. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and Spock, he, uh, Spock goes halfway because mm. he, he he goes through the process, but it doesn't it doesn't make any difference to him because actually he's already at peace with himself. Mm. So that, that that for me is really fascinating. The, the, the bit about just discovering God is kind of a because you know it's not going to be God when he, yeah. <laughs> even when you first watch. That would have been a bold move. It would have been an incredible <laughs> move, yes, and and problematical move. Let's yeah. face it. Um, but you know, it's it's but they what get pretty close. They get closer than you might 
expect them to, I suppose, Possibly. in that film. And there is, you know. and as I say, there is healing in that film, interestingly. Mm, yeah. and that, I, a better film, I do like Star Trek V, but very camp reasons, but um, a better film would explore more what Cybot was doing and, and, and how he had affected yeah. the other crew members as well. But um, it, yeah, as per usual, the focus was very much on Kirk throughout. So. And indisputably, I suppose, that scene... Uh, I mean, some people love the campfire scene, other people yeah. love... But that scene with the... You know, with McCoy's pain in particular, the, the, yeah. you know, and Spock as well, is the kind of dramatic high part of the film. Yes. And that is the scene that really lands, partly because the performances, you know, it's real kind of drama. There's a kind of raw drama there that's very effective. The funny thing is, I mean, yeah, you said um, Shatner was thinking of the televangelists and so on. What it made me think of watching it recently is the Scientologists and the uh. idea that, you know, that Scientology can kind of equip you to lose your anxieties to lose your kind of negative feelings that basically all these kind of negative um uh things that you've built up around yourself psychologically can kind mm. of be cured you know it's almost like the ultimate antidepressant somehow it will come in and, and have this effect on you and obviously you know if you've seen documentaries about scientology and so on there are all these weird processes that people go through to kind yes. of uh you, you know first almost i don't know sort of debasing themselves somehow and releasing all this stuff and then being kind of rebuilt maybe at peace or rebuilt or whatever it is and it is a sort of it is you know i mean i don't think i'm going to offend any of our listeners by saying (laughs) it seems cultish but you know who knows i think Uh, certainly to an outsider that seems like a reasonable uh label to most people's definition of cult you know it's yeah i mean the the key thing of course and what cybot doesn't do is he doesn't charge anybody for this process He doesn't know, but he does demand that they come along with him on a mission, you know, to the end of the universe that could easily end in he, their death. So he doesn't demand interesting. Well, he that's gives true. Them the choice. That's all the true. Time. He gives them the choice. But I suppose the thing is, it, I, I guess there is this question with Cybok. You know, to what extent has he just brainwashed people? Mm. Because that's her, that's certainly how it comes across. That's why it seems quite kind of culty. And because uh, it, it feels like they yeah. they've almost you know taken the pill and, the whole, and they're like it involves some sort of a mind meld, and that starts making mm-hmm. you think. Well, what's he doing with? their heads how is he rewiring them yeah exactly. is he actually healing them or is he actually just brainwashing them to follow him I, and but i don't think the film actually comes down one side or the other particularly mm. interestingly it mm. seems rather more open-minded kind of wants him to be not a hero by the end but certainly a sympathetic character by the end and uh, you know obviously then he realizes that he was wrong and in in a way that you know cult figures probably never do so mm. you know it is, in some senses, it's a film that sort of lacks a villain in a way because yeah, it you know, ends God. isn't exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, it's that weird monster, and we yeah. don't really, other than the fact that it was imprisoned, so we kind of assume that it did something bad yeah. at some point in the past. We don't really learn anything about it. Do you no. know what I mean? It's kind of ex- the budget ran out at that point. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't get the rock monsters, and no. we, didn't, we didn't get to find out, you know, really what on earth was going on there. Yeah, which I think may be another reason that the kind of message of the film in some ways is a bit murky because that yeah. ends uh, you know and it ends and it's got the nice uh, scene between Kirk and Spock and it's got they go back to their campfire and so on so it's mm-hmm. all, all the stuff around the end is more and about it, those relationships and the final scenes on the Enterprise end in a very very Star Trek theme mm-hmm. moment where you know the, the question of where is God and, mm-hmm. and very clumsily Kirk says well perhaps he's here pointing to the human heart and it's like yeah that, that's pretty much the Star Trek level isn't it really that's what we'd expect you to find by the see end. that works for me though <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know I, I don't know I, I thought that was the kind of interesting I mean I'm curious whether that I don't know I sort of bought that I bought that as Kirk's position I yeah. bought that as a kind of 
I mean, it's a bit weird because he, he's sort of asserting that as if, like, every, right, I'm the captain, so, yeah. <laughs> so listen to me, <laughs> you know, almost. But at the same time, I kind of felt like that was a good, it's a sort of good compromise everyone can yeah. kind of go home with and, you know, <laughs> now we can get back to, you know, melting marshmallows and, and mm. singing songs and, you know, kind of get on with our lives in a way. But obviously, I suppose the, so the, the god figure or the monster or whatever we want to call him, the, the fake god in Star Trek V isn't the only kind of, God that we see even in later Star Trek. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, the Edo God in Justice, mm. um, which is quite a kind of, you know, it is a, a machine, or I think they talk about it as being a, more like a ship. There are, there are people it, in it. It looks like a space station, and they actually use the model later on yeah. <laughs> as a space station. So that's presumably kind of what they were going for. So it, it's sort of slightly unclear whether it's an entity or, or a sort of group. Yeah. Uh, Sort I, of, I know, think it's Next Generation's version of, of, of the computer for yeah. various computers yeah. from the original series, basically. But it's interesting, what struck me about that episode is it, it feels very much like a sort of Old Testament God. You know, it's yeah. very much because the episode is all about justice, it's all about punishment, yeah. executions, all this sort of thing. And it speaks with a booming voice and it says, yeah. leave my children alone. and you know, Shakes all this the ground. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, and then Picard has to make this sort of more sort of New Testamenty kind of, you, you know, a bit like, you know, the sort of almost the Vedic Burial end of kind of, mm-hmm. of religion of being a bit more open and, you know, considering alternatives and kind of not being closed-minded and so on. And so it almost feels like there's that kind of, um, although Picard is this complete sort of rational atheist, there's that kind of tension there between this kind of, you know, older version of a god who's kind of wrathful and and very strict and and punishing people and this kind of idea of i suppose mercy in a way and kind mm-hmm. of recognizing well someone might have done something wrong but we can you know let that slide at this occasion yes it, it, it's it's a very yeah very it clumsily sort of done it has to somehow, be said but yes god. it's yeah. there <laughs> and and the, the way it all wraps up you know, in a few seconds at the end is fairly unconvincing it has to be said but well it's probably not one of Next Generation's strongest episodes. No, uh, it was in the first season, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, Picard does a a nice speech, and, you know, like you said, the model is, you know, it looks pretty good, the the Ezo God model thing. The the other one that came to mind for me was the caretaker in Voyager, who's Uh very much, you know, in that sort of traditional mould of an old man with a beard, this kind of, you know, slightly curmudgeonly, but but basically kind old man. But then, of course, the interesting thing about the caretaker is he, so he is a God insofar as he's perceived as a God by the Okampa, but the whole story is about him dying. And, yeah. you know, so it brings this idea, you know, God is dying. You know, Nietzsche said God is dead. Mm-hmm. That how are they going to cope without their God? And I suppose there's that kind of, but then for the Voyager crew, they go off on a mission, you know, at the end of Caretaker, they're, they're hoping to find the other Caretaker. They're hoping to find another one of these sort of super powerful beings to send them home. And it always sort of strikes me as strange how often, given that Star Trek is for the most part, quite kind of rational and scientific and so on, how the pilots of all these, you know, different series, how often they involve some kind of super powerful godlike entity. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So you've got the prophets in Deep Space Nine, you know, you've got Q and uh, also those kind of weird jellyfish things and yeah, there's the stuff going on in uh, Encounter at Farpoint. You've got the caretaker in Voyager. It's sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's surprising. I think when you watch Voyager and you sort of get into that story, you kind of almost forget how it was that they got stranded there in the first place because yeah. the emphasis is all about Janeway destroying the array and that seems very scientific and rational and so yes. on. But then this kind of weird, mysterious, godlike figure who dragged them there, we almost forget about somehow. Yeah, and his relationship with the, the, the planet below and the kids. Yes, no, it's, yes, it does get... They sort of move on quite quickly from there, don't they, basically? They do, definitely, they do. I guess the other thing we could talk about, the, the kind of other side of that and something that comes into when we were talking about the Garden of Eden and these kind of, you know, Edenic uh, stories is the role of 
you know, in um, the Apple, Kirk describes himself. Does he describe himself, or does either or, or Spock? I'm quite well. Anyway, there's some discussion of Kirk basically playing the kind of role of the serpent, or playing mm, the, the yes. role of the tempter, and so on. And actually, these kind of satanic figures do crop up now and then in Star Trek. I guess. Um, I'm thinking that the, I mean, the most obvious one is in the animated series, uh, in the <laughs> Magics of Megas 2, where we get yeah. Lucian, who basically is as, as kind of unambiguously uh, Lucifer as, as you can get. And, exactly, yeah. with pitchfork and horns and, <laughs> you, you know, and hooves and everything. But at the same time, he's kind of, um, he's a nice guy, he's quite gregarious, he's quite mm. chatty, you know, he keeps saying, oh, friend, Kirk, come with me, and you, you know, and, and they like him, he's a very likeable guy, and there's this sort of question, I suppose, in that episode, it seems like they're not, I mean, first of all, they are saying that the devils were aliens or whatever, so that is the kind of traditional Star Trek message, but they're also sort of saying that they were misunderstood, and... It, it sort of reminds me of that, um, you know, William Blake said of Milton that he was of the devil's party without knowing it, that kind of sympathy for for the the outcasts, sympathy for the kind of fallen angels and so yeah. on. That's definitely there in that story, which, you know, is quite, I mean, it's a pretty crazy <laughs> story <laughs> as, as, as it is. As most but, of the animated know, series, but, but yes. Yeah. It's, it's, again, quite a bold thing to put on TV, you know, yeah. even in a cartoon for, for kids or whatever on a Saturday morning. It's a... It's an interesting take that Star Trek puts in there, I think. Yes, it, it does stick out as well, mm. um, particularly with, compared to the, the original series. Um, yeah, it, it, it generally is not quite so obvious as that as you know, who the bad guys are. And he is kind of one of those sort of, there's a lot of chaotic figures, aren't there, in, in the original series? Uh, Squire of Gothos. Mm. There, there, there are several sort of very, very powerful beings they come up with. Uh, and Q, I suppose, is mm. like the next generation version. That, sort you know. of trickster, yeah, trickster, trickster gods, type. I suppose. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, to, with enough power that actually the, the crew are, are in trouble around them, but um, they're, they're nevertheless, they're not completely evil necessarily, and they can be sort of be won over by a good argument from Picard, or, or they can be won over by you know, Kirk's uh, ability to turn any situation around basically mm -hmm. we get um again i guess a kind of the, the the other closest i can think of to a kind of satan character which is an interesting one is again in voyager where we have that episode uh coda where this alien is trying to lure janeway into his matrix he talks about and there's all this discussion about is this is this the afterlife basically you know, he's saying you're dead you know come with me come with me and she actually says at the end go back to hell coward so although she's supposedly this rational atheist yes. she's kind of identified him with the devil almost and with this idea that he's he's trying to drag her to hell and then she has this discussion with chakotay about you know is it possible that his species again i suppose it's that idea you, you know well maybe we can understand that hell is a, is a real thing and it's a scientifically understandable thing and there's a species of weird aliens that drag us there after death and so on. And, you know, that's not something that we want to do. But again, it's kind of... It always struck me as surprising that she has that line where she kind of explicitly makes that connection. Whether she... What, what exactly she's what using it as a metaphor it. i think would be my, but is my she? guess because he's mm. he's this kind of evil figure who lurks at, at the point of death he backs off into this kind of fiery whatever it looks like sort of eye of sauron into this kind of fiery yeah. uh, portal almost yeah. i don't know i sort of feel like it's again it's sort of skirting a bit of a line that episode where you're kind of wondering well you know what are we being shown here um is that doctor who episode uh, you know the David Tennant Doctor Who, where they they go and find a kind of giant Satan monster. Yes, in there, you know, yeah, the Satan, the Satan, Satan pit. pit. Yes, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, 
yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, again, Doctor Who's done that before with the, the original uh, run of Doctor Who and the Demons. Mm. Uh, the, the main character from which is Zale looks just like that one in the animated right. series. Right, okay, now, yeah, I, yeah. I remember looking up which one came first. I can't remember oh, now. But, that's uh, an interesting question, yeah. And then in the Next Generation, you've got Devil's Due. Yes. Where it's, it's rather more traditional. Um, you know, is, is this really the devil? Oh, no, it turns out it's just somebody that's got a lot of scientific know-how that misusing it basically but we find out that the Klingons have a devil character yes, with the that's Fetal. right and I suppose that idea of the Faustian pact which is you know what devil's due is, is all about is this idea of making a pact with the devil and interestingly it, stru- it didn't struck me till um, I was thinking about this but you know Cisco has one of those in the pale moonlight the mm-hmm. title of the episode you know did you whatever dance with the devil in the pale yeah, moonlight right. that's it's the straight idea. from he's, Batman he's, yeah. <laughs> exactly a quote which I think is you know Deep Space Nine is, is wonderful with its uh, references in its um, yes. episode titles I, I remember looking that up Batman thinking that sounds like Batman I know and you look it up in memory alpha and yes that's where they took it from exactly like, not Shakespeare okay. not, <laughs> <laughs> the classics then <laughs> yes, exactly yeah, yeah 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 but I mean definitely that idea is sort of in there uh, and the fact that they chose that line for the title was yeah. to, to put a pin on that almost in a way to say yeah, yes, and there of course, is this kind of Faustian element here in, 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 in Deep Space Nine it's the par race sort of, yeah. sort of the evil force as opposed to the, the prophets who are the good mm-hmm. and it seems to suggest certainly that uh, the beginning of season 7 that those those sort of visions that Cisco's experiencing are actually to do with the par race and mm-hmm. they're trying to hold him back yeah. so he's, he's literally you know for, for in Bajoran standards being tempted by the devil here and yeah uh, and they're very much, you know, they've been expelled from the celestial temple, yeah. just like the fallen angels have been expelled. There's this, you know, very much that kind of idea of the, the and they come from the fire ones. caves, the, <laughs> the fire caves, yeah, yeah. And you know, they they do the red eyes and they do yeah. all the kind of evil, like traditional kind of. Uh, you know, TV sort of movie stuff. And also they have this kind of weird cult built around them. I mean, mm. you know, Goldie Cut uh, becomes, you know, this cult leader basically yeah. preaching the way of the pirates. And even Kai Wynn, of course, gets sort of seduced by them as well. So there is that idea of... I mean, Again, but she's interesting because she's she's a religious leader that she actually confesses she ne- hadn't had a religious experience. Mm. So the prophet, she, she actually tells Kira, the prophet's never spoken to me. And it's like, Hey, really? So how did you end up as, as effectively Pope of this religion? Then? I know. That's the, and that again, I think is another one of those moments where weirdly you feel sorry for her. You yeah. do sort of pity her because I mean, you know, in, yeah, in the reckoning where, where she kind of pulls the plug on that fight because she, you know, as they put it, she sort of lacks the faith to, to see it through in a sense. But there's also that scene earlier where Kira is embodied by the is possessed by the prophet yeah, she and Wynne basically them, goes yeah. up to see her and is like you know I'm the Kai of Bajor I'm your I'm your link to the to the world or whatever and the prophet just blanks her completely yeah. will not speak to her and you know you do feel sorry for her in a way like she's given her whole life to this cause and her her you know these beings that she reveres just literally don't see her they kind of have no use for her whatsoever and so of course she does get sucked into the the parades who who yeah. want her, you know? or is it of course that the the prophets already know how it's going to turn out and that's yeah. why they're blank her, they know <laughs> like, yeah. it's going to come your from persona her. non grata yeah <laughs> right here, pretty much yeah definitely i mean it, it is I, I i have to say i have always slightly struggled with that final arc uh, the, with, with the Parwraith element of the final arc of Deep Space Nine, uh, I always find it a little bit, seems a little bit much somehow, but it is kind of, it sort of half makes sense anyway that Wynne would, would go there. Yeah. Um, and certainly it makes sense that she'd get up, she'd get herself into something pretty bad. But definitely with the Parwraith, we have that kind of idea of this sort of, these satanic characters and this kind of satanic cult. And I guess it's kind of interesting because, you know, we do have Satanists in the real world. Um, I don't know that 
they've ever had as much kind of power or sway or whatever as in Ducat's hands they yeah. seem to be in danger of having do you know what I mean yeah. that's becoming like quite a big he's got quite a lot of followers in that situation yeah. and quite a lot of power and so on but I guess again that is sort of tying into it's interesting again that they chose to go there uh, you know having presented the Bajoran religion about the prophets and having found these sort of demon characters they decided to kind of create a whole other sort of anti-religion about them yes, as well. and it comes quite late on and it, I mean uh, you know, Dick Smith's Island wasn't as, as tightly plotted out as of a series so it, you know the, the, if they found a good idea they generally ran with it mm. so mm. I know my wife Anne-Marie is not at all keen on she liked the fact that initially the Bajoran religion just it wasn't you know yin and yang it was just a, a, mm. a, a, a something that in enhanced people's lives and gave them um, a sense that they were being looked after by these uh, beings beyond them and gave them faith in times of need mm-hmm. and she, she kind of felt like it was, uh, it was a bit cheap to then start introducing a, a dark side right. um, yeah. Be- yeah. as uh, you know, every you know, religion ends up seem- seeming to have to develop so that's an interesting point actually it makes it seem less alien I suppose yes. that's the, Un- certainly less unique as yeah, well yeah uh, no I can see that definitely and, and I suppose a lot, partly because a lot of those stories about the power race and so on they do feel like they're leaning on quite well trodden yeah. tropes in a way you, you yeah. know uh, whether that's to do with how they're visually represented or the kind of you know or the behaviour of the people in the cult or whatever it is it it, fe- it doesn't feel massively original maybe no. um, and, then, and initially of course it's just introduced just to make Keiko evil for an episode yeah. so they can torture yeah. O'Brien so, you know, that was, yeah. that's how it all came and then they thought oh, this, this works quite well and sort of ran with it yeah yeah I quite like that episode <laughs> and I think I think it's kind of what I like about it is it, it almost feels like they're sort of engaging with all the people who hate Keiko yes. already it's, this is like you thought you hated she's, Keiko she's, before I know exactly she's not that different yeah she's exactly it's you know. the difference yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of um, <laughs> you know she's, she's bossing miles around and you know he's miserable and under the thumb and so yeah. on but in fact now it's because she's this kind of it's evil alien, large uh, <laughs> demonic entity yeah you know? <laughs> I guess the other thing that Deep Space Nine has, of course, is these kind of characters who, you know, most obviously Cisco as the emissary, but we also get with Odo characters who are revered Mm. without wanting it. Do you know what I mean? Without seeking it. I mean, with Odo, we get this kind of idea that to the Vorta and uh, mainly the Vorta, I suppose, he's seen as a god. So Yoon, for example, sees him as a god. Cisco obviously is is seen as the emissary, seen as a, I was going to say as a prophet. He's not seen as, I mean, he, he does turn out to be partly a prophet, but he's seen as, you know, what we might call a prophet he's seen as this kind of revered uh, religious icon in a sense and i guess both of them in some ways have elements of this kind of cisco in particular has this, this kind of messiah element around mm, him doesn't he has messiah, this kind of reluctant yeah. messiah reluctant kind of messiah figure it made me think also i don't know if you've seen that every christmas that meme that goes around uh for the the hallmark ornament of um spock and kirk in the wrath of kirk, yes. Spock giving up his life and it, it says <laughs> I, I, I i took down the words because i thought it was quite funny it says celebrate christmas with an ornament about a man who died to save others then rose from the dead to the joy of many yep <laughs> <laughs> you know that element of you know, Spock as a Jesus character, which mm-hmm. I suppose does, you know, it is definitely a way of looking at that trilogy of films that, you know, yeah. we do have this cycle of, um, there's that you know, great moment in Star Trek four when McCoy tries to engage Spock, you know, t- tell me about the afterlife effectively. Yeah. And it's like, well, I, I can't talk to you without a common frame of reference. It's like, <laughs> Damn it. You mean to say I have to die before we can share this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the ironic thing, of course, is in Star Trek, there's quite a lot of characters who come back from the dead one yeah. way or another. I mean, you, you know, McCoy might not have done it. I don't think. I can't remember. He probably had, to be honest. But, um, you know, Spock could have found, they could have had a club. 
to you know yeah. to share their kind of resurrection stories but definitely i think and if you look at like all the vulcan stuff in star trek 3 as you say it's a very kind of religious ceremony but it also feels very ancient and i suppose mm. the fact that vulcan is this very it, it, you know, it feels almost like a sort of Middle Eastern desert kind of environment. You know yeah. what I mean? And the kind of all the robes and all the kind of it's not a million miles away from one of those kind of, uh, you know, the greatest story ever told or those kind of movies mm-hmm. about the kind of about those kind of religious yeah, you, stories. You do, do you know expect what I mean? them to wheel out the Ark of the Covenant exactly. any minute now. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting how the Vulcans effectively have a religion built around logic. So mm. it, does, it doesn't require a divine being, although Sarek is probably as close as they not Sarek, uh, Sirak. Sirak, Sirak is as close yeah. as they get. It's got huge elements of religion to it. And mm. um, that was Star Trek 3 is the obvious example where, mm. you know, it's, it, they have ritual, they have gowns they have well that's not particularly logical is it but it's Mm. it's it's all part of the system interestingly definitely and i guess it's part of that thing you know the vulcans they have to have all these rituals you know even if you think about like the way they deal with a ponfar or anything like that to kind of deal with their emotions you know what i mean they're kind of they're 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 propping up their society in some ways they're kind of holding it together it's the sense that you get do you know what i mean they need these kind of very ancient traditions even as they seem to be quite a modern you know rational kind of scientific all the, uh, all the while they're struggling with, with what they're keeping bottled in and it's, it's exactly religion yeah. logic that enables them to do that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I guess just going back to Deep Space Nine, so we've got Cisco, who's the emissary. Uh, you know, he is this kind of reluctant messiah, but at the same time, we, we do have these kind of links, uh, you know, to, with the kind of Jesus character because we find out towards the end of Deep Space Nine, he was... Was he immaculately conceived? He was yep. sort of, he, he, he was, at least there was a, a spirit in his mother at the time, wasn't he? So well, it's a, the really weird thing know. is that, that so a, a, um, a prophet takes control of the, the woman that turns out to be his mother mm. for a couple of years and gives birth to a baby, then leaves, leaves the woman behind, leaving her very confused as to why she's with this guy and she's got a son suddenly. Which raises sort of weird consent issues. Well, there are huge else, issues, but, but, again, but then again, the prophets don't understand such things because no, they they're outside linear yeah. time, you yeah. see. So it, it works. It's, mm. it's horrifying, but it works. And yes, that sense that, it, you know, the reason why, you know, you get a reason why he is the emissaries is not the chosen one by accident, but, but actually it, it's, it's been designed all, all the way along by yeah. the prophets. And it's interesting interesting that the journey that he takes to kind of coming to accept it i suppose yeah, you know, from having been that. quite kind of uh resistant to it to to really embracing it and you know and making prophecies himself you know he, he makes that prophecy about the locusts uh, yes. which again it has real kind of biblical overtones doesn't it you, and you then know, you get sort of starfleet brash brass hovering over his shoulder going hang we're really not comfortable with this. <laughs> yeah it's, it's one thing to kind of go along with it but yeah know, once you start making prophecies yes, and, yes. And, you know telling people you know blessing them and you know all this sort of thing it's kind of but it, I suppose he was doing the blessing people before, wasn't he? As a kind of just out of politeness. He was to begin when, with. When he yes. starts meaning it. You yes. know, it's, it's yeah. Like, then, and then you're and in again, trouble. see, Jake's interesting because he's not comfortable with it either. Mm. Uh, and then you Which get is that, fair enough. Yeah, particularly when you get that episode where he's, he's uh, in the in the pale moonlight, like when he's getting the, the visions and things, and um, you know they're worried that they've lost him effectively at one point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in rapture. Yeah, that, I think. Yeah. I'm thinking of? I think yeah. When, he, when yeah. He, start, he starts, he thinks he can see because he, and he has that kind of divine. He says he almost understood the whole universe. Yes, he could hold it, in and, his and hands, that's right. And, and that then it's lost like, at the end through you know Bashir's yeah. scientific. Uh, 
interference. Uh, Changeling Bashir, as it yeah. turns out later. Yes, as well, really weird, weirdly. Makes it, you watch it and you think, now, what's his agenda here? Yes. <laughs> it's actually, is it not great for the Dominion if the <laughs> starts having all these visions? You know? But, um, yeah, so you've, you've got a real contrast, I guess, between Cisco, who is this kind of reluctant messiah, but ultimately takes it on, ultimately is willing to, to commit to it 100%, versus, you know, uh, Kirk in the Paradise Syndrome, who is taken for a god. And he does sort of go along with it because he doesn't know any better to some extent. But at the same time, it's very obvious it's a mistake, versus Picard, who is just like, well, I'm absolutely yeah. not going there. You know, don't, <laughs> don't even ask me. You know, we're, we're not playing that game. But then you also have Odo, I guess, who again is this kind of reluctant god character. You know, he doesn't want to be seen as a god. Um, and then, but then he ends up sort of having to use his uh, sway with Wayun almost mm. uh, you know when the station is under occupation and yep. so on he kind of uses that he plays the god card almost uh, yeah. in order to I mean, get I what he guess needs, you know? he, w- he would see it as playing the founder card and he doesn't see yeah. the founders as Fair gods because he's they're kind of, no. yeah but he was Wayun, you know there's no <laughs> exactly there's no and the difference is there? there is of course Wayun and the Jemadara the Vorta and the Jemadara are all genetically modified to, to, yeah. to believe they are gods they don't, they don't there's no free will in this there's no yeah. choice it's um, the way they were built yeah yeah, which is you know you understand Odo being horrified by that really and, and not comfortable with that yeah and you get, I suppose, with Deep Space Nine, there's almost, uh, once they kind of let religion in, it almost, it seems to kind of crop up all over the place. Mm. So you, you know, you've got the Dominion have this religion, you've got even the Ferengi supposedly have their, have their own religion. Yes, it's like well, they have got a heaven, yeah. haven't they, the yeah, divine exactly, treasury. Yeah, yes. you know. So it's, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, once they've opened the floodgates, it's, it yeah, all starts, all, all these stories start pouring in. I, I was thinking earlier today whether the Kardashians had anything particularly well, interesting about them. I, I don't, don't think they not did. That we're, yeah, not that I can think of. Yeah, because I mean, they're always looking down the noses at the Bajorans as a spiritual people. Yeah. Meant very much as an insult. Yeah. 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 Um, it's interesting. Yeah. A lot of culture, you get the sense, Cardassia has a lot of kind of cultural background, doesn't it? You know, mm. Literature and, you know. Yes, but a lot of it, so I think, has been repressed over the years by mm. totalitarian governments. And mm. you wonder how much, whether they, they did have a religious past that was buried. Yeah. Uh, I guess um, just thinking about these kind of messiah characters as well, you often get this sort of tension between, you know, we talked a bit about the Emperor Kalis, who's actually a clone. Yeah. We talked a bit about Tom and Balana's daughter, who's, you know, it, it does save these people from the disease they're suffering from, but at the same time, they rationalize it in terms of her stem cells and so on. So again, there's this kind of not quite reproductive technology, but sort of, you know, it sort of, it sort of taps into that. Um, there's always this kind of the line between the sort of, science and religion again but i was just thinking about odo again you know odo also has this element that he is incarnated at one point you know he stops being a founder when he's punished and he's mm. made into a humanoid essentially almost like you know jesus being a human being do you know what i mean about yes. that idea like putting the divine into a kind of solid human form mm. and he does have that same sort of journey in a way of like uh, learning to understand humanity through living it do you know yeah. what i mean and being forced to deal then, with kind of bodily stuff taking and, that know. experience back to the link with him and exactly eventually sort of turning them around so yes it is there's very an incarnational model to use a theological term going on there mm. Mm. which is interesting for a character who is so against that interpretation against his own divinity yeah. he doesn't really want to acknowledge it he doesn't want to re- and i don't think he ever quite reconciles with it the way that cisco does certainly but at the same time he does kind of perform that role for the for the dominion uh you know exactly what they intended really the founders when they sent these changelings out to kind of go and learn about the universe and so on and come back and and give them this information he does sort of change them fundamentally yeah yeah no it's it's it's, there are parallels to be made there certainly yeah the other thing that struck me just thinking about 
Cisco again, uh, and, and maybe this is, to some degree, there's, there's elements that may be linked to, to Odo here as well, but it's this idea of sacrifice. And what we see, you know, you talked about Jake being very uncomfortable, Jake mm. kind of pulling the plug, but this idea of how far, how far is Cisco willing to go from the point that he accepts that he is the emissary and that he has this kind of destiny and he has this kind of role, how far is he willing to take it? So in Rapture, he's willing to risk his own life. Yeah. Jake ultimately isn't and pulls the plug on it. Um, and although Cisco can understand that, he's obviously very disappointed. But, you know, it, it seems very, I mean, obviously Starfleet captains are frequently willing to risk their own lives for things, but the fact that he's willing to risk his life for this kind of spiritual quest almost is, yeah. is unusual. Um, in The Reckoning, even more surprising really it seems Cisco is willing to risk Jake's life or, or even to sacrifice Jake. I mean, those are the yeah. terms in which it's talked about. And of course, it, you, you know, in the religious context, it makes you think of Abraham and Isaac and this idea of, mm-hmm. you know, being forced to sacrifice your own child to, to please your God or whatever. And that is sort of what Cisco appears to be willing to do. And that's part of what Kira says to Kai Wynn at the end is, yeah. you know, that's why his faith is stronger than yours because he's willing to do it. But at the same time, I can't help wondering, obviously he didn't have to do it. But also, at the end of that episode, he's on the verge of tears, thinking about it and trying to explain to Jake what he did and why he did it. And Jake kind of lets him off the hook because he says, no, I understand that being was so evil, it had to be killed. You know, the, killing me would be the right thing if it, invo- if it meant killing that being. But at the same time, Cisco obviously is having a kind of real understandable <laughs> human feeling of guilt about that. Yes. Do you know what I mean? About the fact that he was ultimately willing to go that far and he almost can't believe it himself. Yeah, and he, he does it again at the beginning of season seven. Drags his not mm. just Jake, but also his father as well to this desert planet, mm. pretty much on a whim in order to be able to reopen the wormhole ultimately. So it's, mm. it, it, he, he, he gets sort of emissary blinkers, doesn't he, from time mm. to time, and he's not paying attention to family and, and indeed to being a Starfleet officer. Mm. Um, there's no sort of there's it's it's not a sense of a sort of balanced journey that he's making he tends to sort of lurch from oh, no i'm not the emissary this is nonsense business to at times he's taking it so seriously it's to, even to as you point out the you know that putting his own family members at risk mm. but it's not just putting them at risk i mean i would say like the you, you're right the episode at the, uh, is it shadows and symbols where they're searching around in the in the forest in the um in the desert or whatever i mean yes i suppose his dad's quite elderly and we've we've picked up from earlier episodes his health's not very yeah. good so it probably was a bad move bringing yeah. him along but I don't think well I've never watched that episode and thought he was literally gonna you know peg out <laughs> as he a result but I suppose maybe that's a good point point. And, yeah. and you know so Jake's trying to, to get them to slow down yeah that's we're part, true, that partly I'm watching it thinking he's kind of obsessive Brock you know? Peters was in his 70s he's <laughs> filming in this yeah. desert <laughs> <laughs> it seems very unfair on him somehow but there you are <laughs> oh well you know, you take the job. I guess. <laughs> it goes with the job, doesn't it? Hollywood folks. But I mean, definitely, I think in the reckoning, there's this sense that he's he's more. It's hard to say it's deliberate because you're right. He's kind of swept up in this kind of yeah. fervor, uh, and obviously, the way Avery Brooks plays Cisco in those moments is very intense. Yeah. It's very kind of. It doesn't seem very calm and considered, if you know what I mean. No, it's very much in the moment, but at the same time, there is that kind of. It seems like he's aware of the consequences. Do you know what mm. I mean? He's aware of the possible consequences. And he keeps saying, don't worry, they'll protect him, they'll protect him. But do we think he really believes that yeah. or not? That's the question. Is he just trying to convince himself of that? Because it seems pretty unlikely on the face of it, you yeah. know, given the stakes of what's going on in that situation. And then I guess at the end of the series as well, you know, he, he sacrifices himself by hurling himself into the fire cave or whatever, and then having to go and leave, you know, and he goes and 
you know, that's, that's the last we see of him. It's, it's almost this moment of self-sacrifice. And I know there's this kind of promise that he's going to return one day, you know, like the Messiah who will, mm. who will come back sometime. But, you know, we have no idea whether he did or when it was or, you know, unless we read the novels, obviously. But, you know, yes, yes. as far as kind of canonical on screen <laughs> yeah. Star Trek is concerned, that question is as open as it is in any religion that has a Messiah who says they're going to come back and, you know, people are waiting. Hasn't and it's it? a weird, yeah. you know ending to that story in some ways to leave that so open yeah but that, that kind of fits with, with how Deep Space Nine has been dealing with particularly with the prophets and the, the religion around it trying to keep it open-ended mm. um, and so you know not, neither trying to come down on completely one side or the other uh, so yeah Definitely trying to keep those two kind of elements in play, yeah. which I guess we see often when there's a prophecy and there's kind of, um, I think of that, like that episode Destiny, where there's a prophecy that they think is going to come true one way and then it sort of comes true another way. But there's always a sort of scientific workaround as well. If you don't yes. really want to believe in the prophecy, you can kind of, it's called X-Files solution. You can kind of <laughs> go one way or the other. You can almost sort of pick your sides. Um, and there's also that element, element with prophecies, I think, because obviously there's a lot of prophecies in Deep Space Nine that they're partly a narrative device, I think. So there's an element of, you know, if you're going to have a prophecy, you, you can't have a prophecy mentioned on screen and then it just doesn't happen at all. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It would be unsatisfying as a viewer. So it has to come true to some extent, even if, you know, maybe you can twist it, you can subvert Hence it in some the, way. The locusts it's kind coming of, down exactly, on Bajor, yes, coming and down it on turns out it's the Dominion. Exactly, the yeah. So it, so it kind of has to... It has to be real as far as the, the logistics of narrative are concerned, yeah. whether or not we might think it were real in a kind of rational scientific uh, world in a way. But there's also that element, there's a kind of, a prophecy is almost like a teaser. So you have this idea of, you know, the penance that will be exacted and that kind of hangs over the series for, you know, a couple of, what is it? Yeah, a couple of seasons, basically, sort of trying to work out what is this, this kind of looming threat, you know, and there's that element with the a prophecy that you have this potential for kind of particularly doom kind of do these doom laden prophecies like you see in the reckoning where they're yeah. saying well, that's you know, specifically something terrible will engulf the, the yes yeah, so they, they didn't follow through with the with, with the reckoning and ha yeah. having the, the final and that's going to then have consequences later on yeah know? yeah yeah so in some ways if that was originally going to be the penance he sort of dodged that bullet and ended up with you know he had a different kind of penance maybe yes. by the end of the series that he's not going to see his wife and his, his other child for some indefinite period of time, yeah. if that's how you interpret it. I mean, it's, I guess it's sort of open to interpretation by that point, but at the same time, they are sort of using it as a way of like stirring the pot a bit and kind of keeping you, yeah. you know, keeping you interested in the <laughs> ongoing narrative. I just thought finally we, we might talk a little bit about, I, I was looking at an interview with Iris Stephen Bear talking about Deep Space Nine, and he was talking about the decision to bring uh, religion into that series and what a big deal that was and he said a couple of things that i thought were quite interesting one of them was that he said that it actually it came immediately after the decision to bring money into the series that basically because they were seen as these two things that gene roddenberry was so vehemently against <laughs> in this kind of utopian future that weirdly once they brought the ferengi in and they brought in this idea of of you know cash essentially yeah, with latinum yeah. that it was easier to bring in religion somehow that it was kind of uh, so there's this weird link between the two things that they were kind of they were the traditional they were outside the roddenberry box and then once they once one had been let in the other could be let in too yeah um, but the other thing he said that i thought was quite interesting was that they the key for them with bringing religion in was that they didn't call it religion they called it faith and oh. that was the idea was that faith was something that people of all religions or no religion could kind of Except, I mean, we see it obviously in Enterprise, faith at the heart, you know, which is a kind of secular 
Thank whatever you, you think of that, that song. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Whatever you think of that song is a kind of, is a secular concept of faith. And yes. I suppose what they try to do by using the term faith is to find a way of making it more sort of inclusive and making it more sort of acceptable. Yes, I, I, I guess. Um, I mean, it, in bo- again, in, in both cases, they, they managed to sidestep it by having... That neither of them being in Starfleet, so mm. we don't. I don't think we see. I mean, the, the, the really weird thing is by the end of uh, season six, Dax is is going to the, the Pajoran Temple. Right. I yeah. That's about the only, and I suppose it's arguably Wolf, but he's not a human being. So mm. you know, it's a, that's like bias that uh, Starfleet has towards the hu- human beings. But yeah, generally, um, hu- human Starfleet officers don't have religion, mm. Uh, mm. even in Deep Space Nine. And likewise, somehow or other, Starfleet still doesn't have money. Yeah. Even though you know they've got a bar tab at Quarks. Yeah. How's that being paid? Never explained. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so they can. They've got other cultures where you can explore faith and you can explore economics and all the other uh, bits and pieces that are arguably lacking in Star Trek before. And the the way they've done it is through the, the melting pot that is Deep Space Nine and pushing these different cultures together. Uh, that's probably why it's my favourite series of all. Well, you probably guessed, but it's yeah. my favourite of the Trek series. It's an interesting point you make about Dax, actually, because not only is Dax, you know, as far as we know, I mean, we, I don't think we ever hear about any kind of religious belief for the Trill, but also she is the kind of implacable scientist. Yes. You know? And in all these episodes where they're dealing with these religious questions, she's the one kind of... Which you know, sort of putting in yeah. uh, her two cents, kind of putting in the kind of Roddenberry position almost, sort yeah. of saying, well, you know, can we please call them wormhole aliens? Yeah. And actually, you know, this is a load of yeah, rubbish. Yeah. And, you know, exactly, like, don't get too swept up in all of this. Yeah. So it is interesting that she gets this point where she's willing to... She's praying She's desperate, in a sense, exactly, she? yeah. yeah. And, she, and she's, you know, and she's seen the impact that these prophets have had on her friends and so yeah. on. I mean, she's seen the fact that they turn the tides in the war, basically, by, you know, intervening yeah. uh, in that way. I mean, it's a real kind of deus ex machina when they, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> when, they, when they stop those ships. But, and that she's willing to do that to kind of, it's not, so, I don't know whether it's almost so much a matter of belief or a ma- as a matter of pride. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That she's willing to go and do that and to ask for something from them. And, and then, of course... Weird thing is she's, she gets what she wants insofar as there's this idea that she is going to be able to have a child and then she's killed. Yeah. So she doesn't get it. So it's yeah. that kind of, um, I don't know, it's a very loaded moment in a yes. sense in terms of all the meanings you might draw out of that. Yeah, yeah. But, but definitely it's an, in, it's an interesting intersection, I suppose, of the kind of, a bit like with Janeway on her spiritual quest, the kind of scientific rationalist, you know, the scientist really coming up against this kind of belief system and finding a way to communicate with it and where the tensions always come from uh, you know both religious and and from a science background is when either party haven't got an open mind but they've already decided what what the answers are right yeah and and deep space line in particular is is about exploring you know people who thought they had a certain set of answers are actually it could be interpreted in another way or indeed that you know the answers might be quite different to what they were expecting them to be so it's it's the open-minded track for me and Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the other way of looking at it that strikes me is that one thing that religion, Star Trek, science, all these things have in common is an interesting kind of awe, an interest in something that's bigger than us, that's bigger than kind of everyday human concerns, you know, sublime, I suppose you might think of it, or, or the divine, however you want to see it. And I suppose we do see that in Star Trek repeatedly in these kind of, you know, in the, the wonder of space, the kind of majesty mm. of it, the awe, you know, the reverence with which kind of spatial phenomena are treated as a purely kind of scientific 
phenomenon, but at the same time as something that, you know, you'll go out of your way to witness a supernova or, you know, one of these kind of stellar events. And there is that episode of Enterprise. I mean, funnily enough, although, you know, we said Enterprise doesn't have much room for religion, any real episode I can think of is the one with the suicide bombers, basically. That kind yes. of gives you an idea of where Enterprise's yeah. general take on religion is. But at the same time, there is the episode uh, Cold Front, I think, where a group of celebrants arrive on board. It's the yes. one where you were saying, where Phlox is saying, oh, I went to the, you know, I yeah. studied the Hindu religion and I went to the Vulcan uh, services and, and so on and they've come to witness some kind of spatial phenomenon basically but yeah. they see it as a religious experience and there's this kind of disjunct between the crew of the Enterprise who are treating it very scientifically and these people who are on this kind of religious um, experience although turn out to be quite rational and practical themselves it's just they're on a bit of a pilgrimage you know yeah. because there's that scene where Trip is quite surprised to discover that one of them's a warp theorist and actually you know knows all about warp engines and, yeah. and so on he sort of assumes oh if he's a religious person he's going to be a sort of simpleton or yeah, something you or know not have anything but to do with science exactly yeah. not interested in science but so there is in the end i suppose there's that element of they you know they might mean different things to different people but they can all appreciate the kind of wonder of this thing and the kind of beauty of it and mm. it, it's almost something they've got in common everyone can experience the majesty of the universe whether they think that's a scientific majesty that evolved out of you know scientific processes or a kind of divine majesty or however they want to interpret it and it's something that comes up i was just looking at the talking about deep space nine as the most kind of the series that's the most kind of enmeshed in this idea of kind of incorporating faith and, and religious belief it's there even in the scripting of the series if you look at the script for the last episode of deep space nine i've printed it out so i'm going to read it here this is the literally the, the last page of the last episode it says, external space, deep space nine, optical. Looking in on Jake and Kira standing by the window, the camera slowly begins to pull back past the usual station shot and continuing further and further away, the station becoming smaller and smaller and smaller still until finally deep space nine becomes just one more bright but distant star in the vast cathedral of space. So again, there's that sort of, you know, uh, must be a conscious choice of words yes. to invoke this kind of religious awe, specifically uh-huh. religious awe, at the moment of the you know the closure of this series, which is a big move for Star Trek, obviously, yes. to do that. But at the same time, is it just a metaphor, or is it kind of hinting at something beyond that? You know, yeah. And and uh, Starfleet has sort of taken the exploration of space and. Uh, expanding scientific knowledge to quite a sort of dogmatic, almost religious level. You see it in Deep Space Nine where they're, they're constantly going into the Gamma Quadrant, even after they've discovered about mm. uh, the Dominion, because they've got to explore. Yeah. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, you just got your butts kicked. There was a galaxy-class ship, you know, blasted into pieces, and here you are going out exploring on some planet, just because mm. it's what we do. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's Starfleet. <laughs> Almost like the missionaries, kind of, you know, yeah. that's, their, that's their mission. It is, it's their continuing mission, you yes. know, to go out there and do that. And you get that in Voyager as well, Neelix sort of saying, what's wrong with you? Are you all mad? Yes. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be going home, just stick to the plan. Don't, don't get, you know, diverted for all these other uh, sort of interests. But I suppose it, that, again, it is part of that kind of absorbing the wonder of the universe, mm. whatever that means to you personally. We and explore, kind of, therefore we are. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that seems like a nice place to wrap things up here, really. But um, before we go, Peter, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about how they can find you online and if they want to listen to your podcast, where they can find them. Okay. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. Um, as Rev underscore org. It's R-E-V underscore org. But also we, uh, together with my wife, we do the Borg cast. 
B-O-R-G, and that's on iTunes and on Libsyn. And uh, we're coming to, we've just started the last season of Deep Space Nine. We've covered most of Next Generation. We, we, I, I was forced to cheat because uh, Amory is not a big fan of season one of Next Generation. Riker without a beard is an anathema. Um, but you did cover Justice, I saw. Yes, yeah. we've, we've done bits <laughs> and literally got to the point where we were doing a couple of seasons whilst we were covering Deep Space Nine. But then the, the <laughs> we got whiplash, basically, because Deep Space Nine got it really, really good. And first season Next Generation was so bad that we could we did, we couldn't carry on. But I, I will fill in the rest of the gaps, not necessarily with Amory at some point. Um, we have a cover, also cover the movies as well. And uh, yeah, um, we've also been covering Discovery, which we haven't mentioned yet, interestingly. We haven't. Have we? No, that's a very good point. Um, and religion and Discovery is, at the moment, anyway, fairly much sort of restricted to the Klingons, and we're learning a lot more about the, you know, the Klingons. We are, definitely. And again, I suppose that idea of, of the sort of messianic yeah. figure. I don't know that it, it, it doesn't have all that much of a kind of spirit. Well, well it has a spiritual air in, in terms of like treatment of the dead and in terms uh-huh. of these kind of beliefs and practices and so on. But does it have a kind of supernatural side? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Is it more a matter of cultural? Because I guess what we often see in Star Trek is religion as cultural practice, which yeah. is sort of what Flox is talking about when he's saying, oh, I'll go and pray with the Hindus or, you know, do whatever with the Vulcans or, or whatever it yeah. is. Is it kind of putting religious practice in a purely kind of cultural box in a way rather than... It depends, because, because if you're justifying what you're doing because that's how you're going to get into Stovo Call, and then I guess that's a more sort of religious, less practical side to it. But yeah. Slightly kind of fundamentalist. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's interesting to see how Discovery is. I, I was not convinced to begin with, as we said, um, but I got gradually won over. So I'm quite interested to see how season two pans out. So we'll be covering that on the podcast as well. Well, I say compared to season one of any Star Trek, you know, yeah. since 1966, they're probably, you know, not doing too badly. The hardest part was getting over the Klingon makeup, which I never quite managed, particularly yeah. when it yeah, was yeah. revealed. It was only to cover up the uh, identity of one of the actors. Yeah, yeah. Was a bit of a cheat. <laughs> there are a few, off. you know, there are visual surprises in Discovery, definitely. <laughs> but I think, you know, it may be one of those things in, you know, 10 years' time, we'll look back and think, yes, what was we'll be cool with that. You know? Yes, yeah, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us on Primitive Culture. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And thank you for hosting me in this beautiful church. That's well. okay. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been fun talking about religion and religious practice in Star Trek. Um, but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Meta Treks. You can see the Gene Roddenberry playing with the idea of what we could become given our full potential and the aliens that have achieved that looking down and, and kind of criticizing or examining or evaluating humanity from a moral standpoint, almost like Q does in, in putting humanity on trial. There's a sense in which humanity is being judged by these morally superior aliens that are genuinely pacifists. Or in the case of Q, genuinely narcissistic. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's not trying to, to be a Starfleet officer. He doesn't care about doing that in the context of, well, because I want to prove that I'm a Starfleet officer. But I think that, and again, this is what uh, perhaps in, in hindsight, after the fact, he starts to realize that who he is aligns itself or can align itself with what Starfleet stands for. To the journey! I was wondering why they didn't do a mind meld at the end of the, the episode. Why, why would they do that? Because Tressa has 90 some odd years, 94, 96 years of life experience, and Tuvok is a Vulcan, so he can mind meld. Why wouldn't he do that? Because there's no reason to do that. You're just going around mind melding with people willy nilly just because they're old and you want their knowledge? Is that what you're doing? 
Yeah, it's like space genealogy. Dude, boundaries. Melodic tricks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the da 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 you know, Sandy Courage, wonderful horn theme, and um, Jerry's da 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 you know, his theme for the first movie, and, and make a theme out of those, so combine them. So I did it electronically, and they said, good enough, and I said, I look, this is not my specialty, and they said, never mind, you got it. So 18 years later, you know, that was it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture, and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett, and you can find Duncan on Twitter, at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.